Welcome to the January 2019 Rehab Cast from the archives of PM&R. This issue features a dive into mHealth, or more precisely, mRehab. We're talking about the smartphone-enabled health-related applications that are exploding in uptake in every area of medicine, including rehabilitation medicine. We're talking with a leader in the fast-growing field, Dr. Brad DiCiano of the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. DiCiano and his team have just published the first review of mHealth apps related to rehab, work that spans a 10-year period of literature. And before we get into that, my own hospital, Shepherd Center, is currently conducting work in mHealth as well. Just in time for the podcast, we do have a survey out. You can find it at https surveymonkey.com slash r slash mrehab dash pmr. Now this survey seeks to identify clinicians' perspectives of the needs and barriers to adoption of technology-based rehab interventions inside and outside the clinic for people with disabilities and chronic conditions. In turn, the information collected from this survey will be used to help researchers, designers, and engineers create new mRehab solutions to meet the needs of people with disabilities and chronic conditions. Following the survey, you can join Shepherd Center's mRehab Tech Network. That's our national network of clinicians, researchers, and engineers that are working with information and communication technologies to promote rehab beyond the clinic. Now, if you're interested, at the end of this questionnaire, you can select yes to join that network. Again, the link is HTTPS surveymonkey.com slash r slash mrehab dash pmr. We've talked about e-scooters on the podcast before, and now the evidence is starting to roll out about this new safety hazard on the sidewalks. There's a case series study from UCLA, and it's published in JAMA Network Open, and it finds that if you're in a scooter accident, you've got a 33% chance your injuries are going to be so severe, you'll land yourself in the ER, and it'll actually require an ambulance ride to get you there. Only 4.4% of riders landing at ERs had worn helmets, which isn't a surprise to anybody that's observed scooter ridership in the growing list of American cities where they've been introduced. The researchers double-checked this information by observing riders out in the community, and there they observed only 5.7% of riders wearing helmets. Now, shockingly, 40% of ER patients studied came in with head injuries. Even if you're minding your own business out there, e-scooters present a danger to you as well as a pedestrian. 8% of scooter-related injuries treated in the ER were incurred by people who weren't riding the scooter. They just tripped over one on the sidewalk, or maybe they got creamed by a careless scooter driver. And moving right along to our main event, here's our interview about this month's featured study. Joining me now in the rehab cast is Dr. Brad DiCiano. He's an associate professor in the department of PM&R at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, there he is medical director and COO of the Human Engineering Research Laboratories. Dr. DiCiano has uh, some clinical titles as well. He's the medical director of the UPMC Center for Assistive Technology and director of the UPMC Adult Spina Bifida Clinic. Dr. DiCiano, thanks for joining us on the rehab cast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ford. Well, you've uh, done quite a lot of mHealth uh, work yourself, and now you and your team have mounted what, what appears to be the first kind of definitive review of all the mHealth rehabilitation 
related work uh, out there, uh, a 10-year survey, uh, that's, that's a heck of a lot of work. Congratulations on that and, and publishing it in this month's archives. Thank you. Yeah, this was a very large study. We looked at over 8,000 articles um, and pared them down to the ones that were most um, relevant to the field of rehab. Um, there have been some other studies out there that have looked at um, mobile health applications used in very specific ways within rehab, but our goal for this particular paper was to do a, a more of a broad scoping review that covers lots of areas of, of PM&R. It is very broad, and I'll touch on uh, the the apps that are available in each of kind of the major subsections of, of PM&R, uh, including uh, all the way down to things like pulmonary and cardiac rehabilitation and so forth, and, and pull together each of those papers. You had certain uh, exclusion exclusion criteria of which most things were excluded. Uh, what are some of the major uh, things that you were not looking at trying to drill down on what type of mobile health apps in particular were you trying to include in the study? Yeah, primarily um, we were looking for uh, software applications that were used on a mobile phone tablet or even some older studies that used PDAs. Um, and we were not looking at studies that evaluated um, features that were integral to the phone itself. So this mm -hmm. had to be a, a special application that was developed for a specific purpose. And we were looking at apps that were specifically used to deliver some type of rehabilitation intervention. And then we also looked at specifically just at English articles. Okay. So excluding uh, things that are native to the phone itself, this means that you're, you're, you're excluding those types of, of apps that that utilize the, the phone's perhaps um, measurement of accelerometry and things like that? Exactly, yeah. And we also ended up excluding some case studies, um, some theses and dissertation type articles, um, also some uh, review articles, um, mm -hmm. things that weren't formal, uh, formal studies. Okay. Now, you yourself have done some of this work and, and your team there at, at your lab. Uh, I see you all have several publications related to an app uh, for folks with spina bifida. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, we um, realized that um, a lot of our patient population in spina bifida, which is one of my clinical areas of focus, um, I see adults, had a lot of preventable conditions and were hospitalized for things that we could do a better job at managing in the outpatient clinic. So um, we, we initially had a pilot program that we ran um, that was an in-person program that used a mobile nurse. And we took what we learned from that program and developed a mobile health system specifically for our spina bifida population that helped them manage uh, things that were really um, big ticket items for their health, either in terms of cost or in terms of ER visits or hospitalization. So we targeted things like medication management, um, prevention of uh, UTIs through regular bladder management. Um, we also had uh, an app for bowel uh, care to manage neurogenic bowel, mood, a variety of different um, aspects. And um, we studied that uh, app for use in um, a year study, and we had really nice, consistent use of the app in our pop in a small population, and um, we had some trends towards some improved outcomes in uh, a group that used the app combined with standard care compared to a control group that just got standard care. So that was really our first feasibility study, and using this the version one of the app, and since that time. We've had other funding that have led us to 
uh, develop the app, make it more robust, add more features. Um, we've actually studied it in a spinal cord population um, with, with spinal cord injury, uh, found um, very similar outcomes, and we're working on that paper right now. Um, so that's kind of where our, um, how our project, project has progressed over time. Okay. And when you get down to this uh, review of, of everything that's been happening over the, over the past uh, 10 years, it, uh, again, there's, there's quite a large diversity, people checking out all sorts of different potential applications uh, with mHealth apps. Uh, and again, I mentioned all the different fields that are involved. I mean, there's just general neurorehabilitation, musculoskeletal, more specifically stroke, spinal cord, TBI, um, all sorts of stuff, um, pain conditions, cancer, and, and everything. Um, the the diversity is huge. I guess over over ten years, you you would expect that to be the case. And again, you mentioned that uh, in some of those earlier papers, uh, it's even utilizing an outmoded form of technology. It's the apps for that kind of first generation PDA type device. I, I think I remember using one of those in uh, in med school. Um, uh, so that that was quite a lot of work. You could, as y'all were digging through all that, did you think, oh boy, maybe we should just maybe the past five years or something, rather than go back that far? Well, it, 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 it was a lot of work, and we did find, um, you know, some papers that the technology is relatively outdated, but we realized that um, we should include that information even from, you know, the, the prior five years because um, it, we can learn a lot, not specifically about the technology itself, but how people were interacting with the software. So we mm -hmm. felt that there was enough to learn from those studies that they warranted being included. Yeah, and and that really is the the most valuable aspect of of this study. It's um, uh, y'all characterize some of the different findings in the different categories, the types of applications people are using, and what sorts of evidence uh, they are finding, but. But the general uh, trend, kind of painting a picture of what's been done th thus far, and help provide guidance for what can be done next, I think is uh, is kind of the the key piece of uh, of what you're doing here. And you, um, uh, one general question before we start to talk about those trends, um, what was your kind of impression of like the percentage of studies that you're looking at that are are kind of just more research versus something that was that was actually a commercial product that people could you know, download off of an app store or something like that or start to use. Um, uh, it seems to me like that was probably quite the minority of it. Right. Yeah, it was it was really hard to get a number because the a lot of the articles actually don't really report on whether um, the app is commercially available. And I think there's also a chance that some of these applications were commercially available and perhaps are outdated at this point. So mm -hmm. um, instead of focusing just on ones that are or are not available, um, what we tried to glean was what can we learn from the use of the technology itself so that we can build off that in, in future studies. And y'all talked about kind of uh, three uh, themes or collections of, of the, the types of, of apps that are out there from the psychometric properties, usability, intervention, uh, and so forth. Would you kind of uh, describe those to me about uh, kind of what those studies in, entail and how you categorize those? Sure. So what we looked at was some of the studies that had the most significant findings where they seemed to um, have some validity behind them and also had perhaps some significant outcomes 
Um, so one of the themes where we had multiple studies was um, where the app itself on the phone was used as a measurement tool. So an example might be um, a tool for administering a paper-based survey. So instead of taking it on paper, um, it would it, some rehab uh, tool that uh, would be administered through a phone or tablet. So for things like osteoarthritis symptoms or symptoms of aphasia after stroke. Um, and in these studies, they tested the psychometric properties of the app being used as a tool to see whether it was uh, basically the same as administering it in the conventional way on paper. Um, and there were some important findings showing that um, there is some validity to using apps in this way, um, specifically for some rehab type outcomes. Another theme was to look at the apps in terms of usability and accessibility studies. So um, usability in the sense of um, whether patients can actually use the apps and do they make errors while they're using it? Um, what is their performance like? And accessibility in terms of how does the app accommodate for uh, some type of impairment or disability. So if you have low vision or you have dexterity problems because of a disability, can you use the app? And we saw some studies that really did a good job at evaluating whether and how people use the apps. And then finally, um, apps used specifically as an intervention to try to change some type of outcome. And we saw a variety of studies where an apps were used to in uh, influence gait or mobility in some way, um, change self-management skills, or make some change in um, disease symptoms, pain, um, or other utilization outcomes like use, usage of healthcare. So those were kind of the three emergent themes that we we saw. And of those, that intervention segment there, uh, that that was a, a small piece of the pie, or at least a, a third anyway. And it says that uh, of looking at those, only a, only a very tiny minority are randomized controlled trials, which I suppose makes makes sense to some extent, given that they're the the toughest to do. Um, but uh, what what are your thoughts about that? Should uh, is that something the field should should work on uh, actual apps that, that intervene in, in our RCT designs? Yeah, although some of the the study designs are very difficult in rehab populations in general, and also for these types of studies because they require keeping people engaged, especially if they're longitudinal. Um, I think we do need more robust designs of studies. So that that was actually one of the you know recommendations that came out of this review, and and one of the purposes we did the the review for was to try to come up with some recommendations for future research. And so we saw only that nine of the over 100 studies that ended up in the review were randomized. And of those nine, only five of them actually evaluated full robust mHealth systems that um, where the technology connected the clinician uh, with a patient. Mm -hmm. And that's not just rehab. It looks like uh, that parallels the mHealth industry in general. Y'all state that only 2% of mHealth apps do anything to connect providers and patients. Yeah, there's so many, so many apps on the market. Um, many are just meant for lifestyle changes. So you think of things for weight management or managing stress or other symptoms that perhaps don't have any clinical oversight. There's lots of apps for um, maybe for medical issues, 
but they also don't have medical oversight. They're for, they're for use just for a patient for managing issues with no connection to the clinician. There's some apps out there that are primarily for the clinician to provide educational material references or to use as tools like goniometers, for example. Um, but then the smallest category really are those apps that connect the clinician with the patient. And uh, this is somewhat jaw-dropping. You, you discussed the fact of everything that you looked at, none of these apps are connecting to an EHR in any sort of way. Um, I guess there's, there's certainly a lot of regulation with that, and those EHR vendors have to be involved and everything. But that is still kind of surprising, not, not a single one in that 10-year expanse of literature. Yeah, at least none of the studies that we evaluated talked about that. We could not find any mention of connection at all. Um, part of that, you know, might be the technical aspect where there's so many issues to think about to get data to flow between the app and the, the electronic health record. But even bigger than that, even if you're able to solve some of the technical issues, which in some cases aren't that difficult, um, it's sometimes a policy issue, you know, at different institutions where it's just difficult to navigate that. Well, you alluded to the fact that, and we've, we've discussed some of them, some of the, the trends in the research and, and recommendations and so forth, but, uh, but give me some more recommendations, like what, what makes for a good uh, mHealth app uh, study, um, and uh, you know, what, what are some of the things that people in this field need to, need to focus on? Well, I think before somebody goes out to start a study on um, evaluating an app, especially if it's one that they've developed themselves, I'd really recommend thinking about the development as its own research before you actually study its impact or intervention. And so I'd recommend, you know, studies that involve focus groups, um, formal usability studies where you're evaluating performance of people using the app, um, and then accessibility studies if your intended audience may have impairments or disabilities. You want to engage all the different types of stakeholders in the design of the app, and that will really make the app the most robust. I mean, that's a process that we've used, and there were so many features and great um, design ideas that we got from working with not only patients, but also clinicians and even caregivers. Um, so once you've, once you've designed an app that then you want to study, you know, I would recommend thinking carefully about how do you design the trial and control for a lot of the confounding issues if it's possible to randomize. You know, a nice design might be a control group that gets standard care and then a control group that gets standard care plus the app. And you have to really think about the timeline for the study. You know, a lot of Technology is not engaging enough to really keep people motivated to using the app for a long period of time. So how do you keep people engaged and um, pick a length of your trial that's reasonable? Because what you don't want to see is that you don't have any effects because um, your app just wasn't interesting enough for the participants to use. Yeah. Or as y'all discussed in there, you know, put such a high burden on, on the user. They got to keep entering in all this information. and People are going to get tired and beat her out on that. That's a good point. Even if they're excited about it, you know, they may become less excited if it's burdensome. So you have to find that um, middle ground where it's useful and engaging, but not, not a burden. Excellent. Well, very interesting paper. And I, I do want to uh, take the, some time to ask you about your thoughts about the, the Apple Watch um, and, and the role that it may have in, in, in health. And have you seen anything rehab related that's starting to be cooked up for the Apple Watch or is, is already out? 
Well, there is a, a feature in the Apple Watch where a wheelchair user can now use it to measure activity levels. Oh, wow. The one thing that is exciting about that is that's the first time that we're seeing this in a commercial product. Um, but I will say that we do need some studies to evaluate whether the data that's being collected is really accurate. There's not much um, in terms of research out there quite yet. There's been um, a couple of small studies that have looked at this, but we definitely need a lot more research in this area to see if, if it's really going to be useful for a wheelchair user population. Yeah, uh, certainly there's there's a lot of debate in cardiology circles still about whether this uh, AFib detection that a bunch of asymptomatic people are going to be utilizing in the Apple Watch is, is ultimately going to pan out well for people or not. And I suppose we'll see similar issues perhaps with, um, with rehabilitation interventions. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see if the Apple Watch starts to get used in uh, cardiac rehab programs. And the other feature that I think is interesting in the Apple Watch is the fall detection feature. And that brings up the idea of using technology in older adults. Um, and again, how do you engage people? How do you make it usable and accessible for people who may not be as familiar with, with that type of technology? Yeah, it'd be great as, as they get perhaps more and more data points over time. Some of those movement detectors can be sophisticated enough to check on kind of pre-falls or you almost fell and can we alert a loved one about that it's like you know dad's you know it's just a matter of time the apple watch is showing us this is going to happen any minute now we better we better intervene yeah so the the ability to use um apps patient generated data or um apps that interface with sensors or other medical devices in the future we'd really love to see how data gathered in those ways can be used in personalized medicine you know, how do we use this type of data in addition to data we're gathering in other ways, um, patient reported outcomes or um, genetics and genomics and um, data that we're getting from utilization and then be able to make predictions uh, about what happens to patients in different situations and how to intervene. And I think the real challenge in the future is going to be managing massive amounts of data. The more we collect, the more we have to decide how do we summarize it and make it useful. Very true. Well, Dr. Deciano, I really appreciate your time today and, and helping explain your, your paper for the listeners out there. And again, I would encourage people to uh, go turn to the pages of the archives and, and look up all the details in the paper for yourself. Um, again, we appreciate your time and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. And that'll do it for this January 2019 edition of the RehabCast. Don't forget about 2019's ACRM Annual Conference coming up in November. That's November 5th through 9th in Chicago. The symposia deadline is February 13th, and the papers and posters deadline is February 20th. See you there. <laughs>